Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. I'm Molly Herford. And I'm Peter Glassford. Since we met at a bike race in China three years ago, we've spent all our time traveling and adventuring around the world. We're both interested in all kinds of sports, from cycling to running to swimming to yoga to strength training to salsa dancing. And we realized that for us, the most athletic feat we could accomplish is the ability to flow between whichever type of adventure presents itself any day, whether that's rock climbing or a really epic bike ride. And since we live together, travel together, and work together, we really needed another project to do together, so we decided to explore that concept in this podcast. In this podcast, we will share with you conversations about people who are well-versed in the language of adventure and movement. Ranging from elite athletes who balance things like pro cycling with high-level rock climbing to someone who balances work, family, and weekend adventures in the kayak and trail running. Together, we will hear their stories and tease out tactics that we can apply to our own adventures and learning. So today, in our second episode, I wanted to interview Molly so that you guys could get an idea of who she is and what she's done. Um in her different movement adventures. So without further ado, we should get into this and just find out first, uh, quick in a sort of Twitter length... uh, Profile, profile, bio. bio, uh, Who is Molly Herford? All right, I will try to keep mine under 30 seconds compared to the the five minutes Peter did yesterday. this is lovely. Anyway, I guess first and foremost, I am a writer. I, you know, got started uh, writing for Cyclocross magazine, and then I was the editor there for a few years. And now I'm actually over at Bicycling magazine as sort of our writer at large, um, which means that I, you know, still get to travel around and, you know, go just check out where cool riding and racing is happening kind of all over the world. Uh, so that's been, you know, a super good adventure. People always ask me, what do I write for bicycling? But I pretty much write everything. So, you know, cyclocross, women-specific stuff, road stuff, mountain biking, you know, tips for better climbing, all pretty much everything. And that's web and that's, print. Yeah, that's web and print. Uh, and then I actually just uh, came out with my third book. My first one was about cyclocross, and that came out in 2012. Uh, and then in 2014, I self-published my second book, which was called Saddle Sore, A Women-Only Guide to You and Your Bike, which uh, was all about lady parts on the bike, which is you know something we can get into if we want. But it's it's just this really underdeveloped field in cycling. I had so many women asking me questions that I didn't know the answer to. And I couldn't find a resource for them, so I went out and talked to experts and became the resource. Uh, so that one was really cool, but I'm actually super excited. My third book just came out with uh, Rodel Press just last week, actually. Uh, it's called Fuel Your Ride, and it's all about cycling nutrition. And actually, Peter was one of the coaches that I interviewed, but I worked with a bunch of people that are way smarter than me. Um, and me also. <laughs> uh, including uh, Nancy Guest, who is this brilliant woman who works. Uh, she's been the lead dietitian for the Pan Am Games for the Winter Olympics for Canada. And she does a ton of stuff um, in terms of genetics and how they relate to your nutrition. So she was my main expert, but I talked to a bunch of other experts. And I also talked to a lot of pro cyclists to sort of see where the science and the actual practices sort of mesh together and, you know, what we could learn from that. So those are my main writing jobs. Um, I also write for um, Map My Fitness and for Roots Rated with some adventure travel and running content. 
Uh, and then, yeah, I'm also team manager for Aspire Racing, which is a pro cyclocross team. So we got to spend all of last fall traveling, uh, you know, across the country and around the world for cyclocross racing. Uh, and then, you know, on my own, I was a pretty serious triathlete for a lot of years and raced road and cyclocross at a pretty high level and some mountain bike and a little bit of road racing uh, running. And now I just sort of jump in and out of races as they, you know, strike my fancy. I don't really race quite as seriously anymore, but I still love it. Uh, and yeah, I train a fair bit and we travel a ton and that's more than 30 seconds. Sorry. Yeah, we should probably just take the 30 seconds out and just, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> question. So we're already learning. We're, we're evolving here. Um, so why don't we look, delve a little bit more into that because we're looking at athletics um, when you think back to where it all started, um, your development was a little bit different than mine in that you weren't necessarily an athletic kid. Oh, good God, no. So when did you find athletics and movement and, and maybe why? Like, why did you turn from a bookworm or not turn? You're still a bookworm. But, <laughs> you know, what, what, what got you hooked on athletics, I guess? And what was that? Oh my gosh. So yeah, like that's not an exaggeration. I used to pretend to faint or pretend to vomit to get out of running the mile in gym class when I was in high school. So I couldn't actually run a mile until I was around 20-ish. Um, I just, yeah, I was the least athletic kid. I would much rather be reading at recess. Uh, in fourth grade, I got banned from reading at recess. So I sewed a spare pocket into my winter coat and hid a book in there and then went off and on the playground in red. So yeah, I was not the most active of children. But uh, honestly, I couldn't tell you what really got me into it other than the fact that I was in college and I was suddenly realizing like, oh my gosh, I can't drink two liters of Mountain Dew and eat like five donuts a day and a Pizza Hut pizza um, <laughs> without putting on a couple pounds. So rather than stopping drinking the Mountain Dew and eating the pizza, which came, you know, a few years later, uh, I just started working out, um, which mainly was being miserable on the elliptical machine in the gym for the first month or so. But then, uh, luckily, I had a really rad RA my freshman year who, uh, he raced triathlon and I'd see him walking in in his, you know, tri suit with his tri bike. And rather than thinking he looked like a huge dork, I thought he looked super cool. Um, <laughs> So I was like, what are you doing? And he said triathlon. And my dad had done triathlon back in the 80s before I was born. Uh, there's actually a picture three days before I was born of my mom holding a banner and him running past in his little Speedo. Um, at one point, he just shouted out to her how far apart are the contractions and terrified the medical personnel on the course. Uh, so, you know, he was always kind of into triathlon, but never pushed me into it. So I stole his road bike, which was way too big for me, and started riding and running, sort of. And then I got hooked on it somehow. It, I guess, you know, Peter's the same way. Like, we're both pretty type A personalities. So I think, you know, once I set my mind to the fact that I was going to do an Olympic distance triathlon, it wasn't just, I'm going to do it. It was like, okay, I'm going to get good at this. Uh, and I think I approached it more like a bookworm would, which is, you know, I read a million training books and training plans. I still have file folders on file folders of articles I cut out of Triathlete Magazine at home like, of all the training plans and stuff. So I went about it in like the most intellectual way possible. Um, 
except I missed a lot of key components as it turned out, but that's another story. So, I mean, I think that's interesting that, you know, at the age of 20, you have very little, you know, you've missed most critical windows. (laughs) All critical windows. so, So if we look at this from like a development standpoint, I mean, you're somewhat at a disadvantage. And I mean, I think hopefully there's, you know, people listening who are, you know, getting into their 20s, their 30s, and maybe, you know, haven't tried something new, whether that's any movement at all, or, you know, just haven't tried a certain sport. You know, I I talked about swimming in the last one for myself, having pretty minimal thing. But I mean, for both of us, any of the, you know, boarding, maybe sports or something like this. So trying something new. So when you think back to being a 20 year old, you know, female in college, you know, trying new things is maybe a little intimidating. Like what, how did you get yourself exposed to, let's focus on, on cycling right now, you know, first, like, how did you figure out how to ride a bike? Oh, we've we've talked about this before, but I kind of came to it in a pretty roundabout way, right? Like I had my dad's bike first and it was way too big for me. So the second bike I bought, I bought secondhand from a dude that had dated my cousin. So I had not gone in a bike shop pretty much ever. Uh, you know, I raced my first triathlon in a swimsuit and with cages on my pedals instead of clipless pedals. Um, and it just, I had no idea about it. So after that first season of racing triathlon and, you know, doing fairly well, like, you know, I was winning my age group in a lot of races. I, uh, I realized I needed to get better at the bike. So I joined the Rutgers cycling team, which led to, you know, the best couple of years of my life. They were amazing people. There's a reason we all have matching tattoos, um, but riding with them the first few times, you know, they're looking at me and I'm wearing a sweatshirt and leggings and it's January and it's 30 degrees. And, you know, there's a point where we had to stop on my first ride out with two of the guys. We had to stop and he had to, the one guy had to give me his gloves because I couldn't break anymore because I was wearing these like little skinny knit gloves that I had for running. Um, so I was just so ill prepared for it and I had no idea, you know, what a chamois was. I rode the first two years of cycling without ever using bike shorts. So when they first gave me a team kit, I was like, what are these pants? And I was amazed by them. Uh, it was a total game changer. So, you know, I think women often have this similar experience where we get into cycling in a really kind of roundabout, like friend of a friend sort of way. Like we borrow a bike from a husband or a boyfriend or a friend and we don't hear about all of the things that you need and if you just look at a cyclist you don't necessarily realize that he has padding in his shorts you know you don't know that you need that or that that's going to make your ride so much easier and more comfortable so living with the discomfort I think kind of changed uh, how I looked at cycling and why I ended up writing books about it okay and um, you know, the second sport obviously would be the running. I mean, not logically, we skipped swimming, but in terms of running, you know, that's something that's really stuck with you. I would, if someone asked me, I would say that you're more of a runner. And I usually, <laughs> I usually tell people that you're really good at running, um, because you are, but why, you know, one, how did, you know, what were those first few weeks or months like running when you think back? Like now you can just run for three hours whenever you want. Sheer misery. That's what they were like. <laughs> like, like what did it look like? Like what was the first week? Did you run a marathon or like, did you make the classic like run 10k and not walk for a week or? I think I probably did that one once, but the, the time I started running and it actually stuck was probably after I'd survived my first couple of triathlons and done okay. 
Um, I was living somewhere in, in central New Jersey and it was just a good college town and there was a way that I could run one mile around my neighborhood really easily. Like it was a very gridded out area. So every morning I got up and did that. And occasionally like there were people I knew that also kind of ran and like they'd maybe meet me at a coffee shop or something, but it was pretty much, I was doing one mile every day for the first like few months and honestly training a ton on the like the elliptical machine. I really, really loved the elliptical machine, which is such a like classic college girl thing. Um, but it was easier than running. Running just was really difficult. And I guess I did the mile often enough that it suddenly became like, oh, this isn't, you know, breathtakingly hard. Um, I will also say that, I mean, it turns out that I'm naturally a pretty decent runner. Like, you know, 5K is probably my best because it just go hard for, you know, 18 minutes. But I can, you know, do most kinds of running reasonably well. Um, and I mean, swimming, I was also lucky that while I wasn't athletic as a kid, we did spend a fair amount of time at the beach uh, in the water, not just like sitting on the beach. So swimming kind of came pretty naturally to me too. Like, I've never really taken swim lessons or anything like that, but right. I was always pretty decent at that. Okay. Um, so, moving from that, um, you have this job with bicycling and riding generally and traveling all around, which sounds really crazy and exciting and... Super sweet. Yeah. Um, and, and you do get asked a fair bit you know, via email or people in passing when they see sort of that, oh, you get to travel and whatnot, and they see the exciting side of it. Um, they ask how you get your job, which I think is a reasonable question. You know, how do you become X? You know, how do I become an engineer? I think that's a, a question that people get asked relatively frequently. And we always struggle about how you should best handle that. Um, and, and so I'm wondering if you can dwell, delve into not so much how do I get your job, but tell me, you know, what would be some first steps if I wanted to go down the road to being, you know, a, a cycling journalist or someone who's going to write books or, you know, what, what would you recommend right now if you were starting out? You know, I'm in high school and want to do this. Uh, well, first of all, accept that you're never going to make a ton of money doing this. I mean, you can make a really good life for yourself, but... You know, we're also lucky in that we don't have kids or anything like that yet. And I mean, yet or ever, I don't know. But that was, <laughs> Peter just looked like he was about to faint. So I had to add that in. Um, you know, it, it depends on what lifestyle you want. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you if you follow me on Instagram or, you know, have talked to me before and you think, wow, that job seems really sweet. Uh, I will, first of all, warn you that, yes, it is super sweet. However, it also involves waking up at one in the morning sometimes because you realize like, oh crap, I had a, you know, deadline or I had this piece I wanted to get in by tomorrow morning and I forgot about it until just now. And you get up at one in the morning and you do that piece, you know, like there are times when you don't get to see your parents for Christmas and you don't get to spend Christmas at home with your family because you're over in Europe for the World Cups. And, you know, that's awesome, except for the fact that you're missing your family at home. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, there are tons of 16 or 18 hour days that go into it. It's, it's definitely not all just like, yay, I ride my bike. And then I write really short things about it. It's, 
you know, very involved and to keep it going, you know, I don't just write for bicycling and I don't just write books. Like I do a lot of things to make it all sort of go together. So if you still want to do that, if that sounds awesome, and it really, really is, writing is the best thing ever. Uh, that's actually the, the answer there. Write. <laughs> write a lot. Uh, I remember even when I worked at a business textbook company in an ill-fated sales position that I was awful at, I remember asking if they ever needed ghostwriters to write business books because all I wanted to do was write. It never occurred to me ever that I wanted to be something other than a writer. Uh, so, you know, I've had a million blogs. Like, you go back to live journal and you can read my really bad poetry when I was 14. I was on internet forums writing more really bad poetry. And, you know, when that shifted into sports journalism in college, when that, you know, became my other passion, I wrote a blog. And, you know, when I look back on it, it's still available online. And I'm not going to tell you the URL because it is awful. It is the worst writing in the world. Like, it is so self-promotional and just horrific, but it taught me a ton, and I became a better writer for it. So, you know, the number one answer is to just write, and the other answer is to write, and I, I'm loathe to say it because I, I know there are tons of really underpaid journalists out there, and I've been there, but write for free, write for very little, like, write for any publication that will take you that's in your field. So, you know, when I started out, I sent tons of pitches to so many different cycling and triathlon magazines just trying to write for them. And I didn't, getting paid was such a secondary thing because I didn't have a name for myself. I just wanted to get my name out there and learn about writing. So I was willing to, you know, write for Peanuts and work for Peanuts. And, you know, it eventually, after, you know, years and years of doing that, has spiraled into a career but yeah, like writing and being willing to write, you know, anything to write about what you love is, you know, the main advice. And, you know, if you want to write a book, like small publishers are great. Self-publishing is now super easy. You know, most people can't just go out and land a huge book contract on their first book. So, you know, again, just making it happen for yourself in any way possible. Yeah, I think starting, right? Like whether that's on yes. a blog or, you know, if you think that you have it in you to write a book, like just start today, you know, in a, in a little notepad. Yeah. And start hashing out, you know, your outline to start hashing out the first chapter. Exactly. And ironically, that's the exact same advice that we were talking about last time when we talked about how could somebody get into sport <laughs> to do just, something. Just start, right? And, and, and I think similar, this other step we talked about was like, you know, talking to someone about like where you're... You know, what are you doing wrong? You know, go out with your friend and, you know, they can take a look at you and say, well, you know, your bike's, you know, the seat's way too low. And like, that's a game changer. And they can say, well, you're wearing jeans. Yeah. You know, jeans aren't good. So with writing, you know, by the same token, you know, write a few chapters and then get someone, you know, to read it rather than, you know, emailing blindly and just saying like, basically, I want your job. Give it to me. Yes, for um, sure. Because I think where sometimes your frustration comes from is like the, the art or the, the emails or the inquiries are not you know, there's no effort put into it. It's sort of like, what can I do to do that now? And not, what, yeah. is, what is the path? Or am I on the right path? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a much, you know, there's a lot better reception when you've done some work or done some thinking. And, yeah. And then you can ask for feedback. And I think... The feedback thing is so huge. I remember in high school, I mean, 
honestly, the one thing that kind of got me onto the path I am today, I'd probably still be trying to be a poet if it wasn't for the fact that, like, in my junior year of high school... Oh, geez, our phone is ringing. Um, I've here in the office. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna pause for a second here. <laughs> um, yeah, my junior year of high school, my English teacher, I brought her like a piece of prose I wrote, just like about people in our class, and you know, sort of fictionalized account of people in our class, and a couple poems I wrote, and I was so proud of the poems. And she read both, and she looked at me, and she's like, "Yeah, you should probably really, really focus on the prose." And she did not try to sugarcoat it. Like, my poetry was... By prose, you mean, like, paragraphs, like, written words yeah. rather than poetry. Yeah. yeah. Like, my poetry was, you know, pretty juvenile, and it probably would have stayed juvenile because I don't have it in me to spend 20 hours at trying to craft a single sentence, whereas with prose, you're, you know, with, yeah, long form, you can, you know, write for hours and not have to, like, you know freak out over one word in a three word there's, there's maybe line. more application to written like paragraphs so to speak you know essay writing journal articles that sort of thing yeah so she poetry. she pushed me on that and that yeah it was a huge game okay. changer so get feedback i think is a really good takeaway there and to just start doing something yeah. right like whether that's the right thing or not it'll sort of give you some sort of bearing on where you're going and i think that's you know a good takeaway you can apply to whatever you're doing um, in a similar thing, if you were, I mean, similar, but we're going to step back into sport. So you did triathlon, you did sort of the standard, you know, vegetarian, you know, train a ton of hours, um, you know, despite the fact you're going to school and trying to work and everything else. So if you're looking back at yourself, you know, once you got into that triathlon stuff and, you know, we're somewhat confident in all three sports, um, what would you do differently now? You know, say you were going to take on an Ironman now, would you do, you know, the exact same thing or, or Oh, how good Lord, that... no. <laughs> um, I think actually, you know, part of the reason I wrote this third book, Feel Your Ride, was entirely based on my own past experiences. I mean, if I look back at my, I mean, years of overtraining, um, it was not my vegetarian diet that was to blame. It was my diet that was to blame for why, you know, I had a hard time getting through Ironman and I did it, but I was also, you know, in a med tent getting IV fluids and then crying in the shower drinking vegetable broth that night. So I didn't get through it well. Um, so I think, you know, the main, the main thing that I would change is how I <clears throat> fueled my ride um, in that for pretty much until the last two years, I wouldn't really eat on a ride unless I was already bonked and like dying because I liked eating after. I liked being able to come home and eat a whole pizza because I needed to make up 2000 calories. So I wouldn't eat any calories on the ride. Uh, I, you know, would do 18 mile runs on a cup of water, like barely half of a water bottle. And I could get through them and in my head I was like wow I'm getting through them I'm pretty awesome at this and it never once occurred to me well what if I actually do eat and drink on the bike and in the run like how am I going to feel uh, so my stomach wasn't really used to eating and drinking so Iron Man comes and goes and I you know definitely under ate on the ride I under ate on the run I under drank on both and I was miserable I think now I could tackle an Ironman on the training I'm doing right now and probably do better and feel better because I know how to eat and drink properly on the bike and on the run now. 
So that would have been a huge thing. And honestly, like avoiding the junk miles. I mean, Peter coaches, you know, all these busy executives to do these, you know, massive rides and endurance activities on, you know, 10 hours a week. And I think I would probably have to shift my training to something that was a little more in keeping with that versus trying to train, you know, 20 odd hours a week and being miserable because I'm trying to fit in all of my work and all of our extra activities plus all the travel. So those are probably the two main ways. Train smarter and eat more. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know if I want much more on that. Um, so I guess keeping on the topic of how right now you're training, um, right now do you do anything to gauge your fitness? Um I mean, if I summarize your sort of approach, it's fairly <laughs> whatever you feel. But also I think, you know, a lot of times because we travel so much and you're somewhat at the whim of wherever I decide I'm going to ride my bike pretty much. Um, so you're you're very flexible in that you don't freak out if you haven't run for a month or sorry, swam for a month or run for a month. There was a month there, but um, you're fairly adaptable in whatever you feel slash whatever fits slash whatever, you know, the environment we're in. Um is what you do. But right now, do you do anything, you know, to track your fitness? Uh, I mean, I sort of joke about this one all the time, but like at this point, basically if I feel like slash if I can jump into pretty much any of the activities I used to do. So, you know, if I can get out and do a four hour bike ride and feel totally fine, if I can go out and do a three hour run, like I might be tired after it, but as long as I can still do those and I kind of test them every like at least once a month I do one stupid day where I do something like a three-hour run or a four-hour bike, even if I haven't necessarily been working up towards it, just to make sure I can still do it. Um, and assuming I can do that, then I'm good. And if I feel like crap on that really long run, then I know I need to, you know, spend a little bit more time training. Yeah, and you, you know, there's... I think hills around, you seem to always pick the steepest one. I do love steep hills. You know why? Low RPMs. Oh, well, doesn't pedal quickly. So <laughs> we're, we're, that's definitely one of our areas we're working on. Um, but she likes the low RPM. And so she generally will find the steepest hill wherever we are and just sort of make herself right up it. And I, I mean, I, I don't think that's a bad strategy because it sort of forces you to work hard and you know, she'll, she's gotten a bit of the Strava in there too, occasionally. And so, you know, it's pretty easy with Garmin's and Strava's or whatever to just sort of see, you know, just check in and make sure, you know, are things moving in the direction you hope they would, you know, and whether there's, you know, a huge event goal in, in the horizon, but I think we want to be moving forward generally. Right. And, you know, there's a maintenance period in life and there's, you know, certainly a recovery period in both of those are needed, but yeah. Moving I mean, it's, it's funny, though, because, you know, we were just talking about this. I pulled up some pictures of me from Iron Man back in 2011 and, like, the picture of me, like, the, the start of the Iron Man. And I was training, you know, 20, 30-hour weeks. And, you know, looking at that photo then and then looking at me now, like, I'm in better shape and, like, have better fitness than I had back then. And, I mean, you know, I'm... When I look at Strava's compared to two years ago, what I was doing when we were in the same place, amazingly, we were in the same place twice, um, I'm beating those times by quite a bit. So, 
yeah, it turns out that maintenance is actually much better for me than my severely overtrained state was. Well, and then also just progressing, you know, as a mountain biker, you've improved a lot over the last couple of years, right? So Thanks to you. Well, I don't know what that is. I think a lot of it's just doing it, but... Well, yeah, um, that's thanks to you. Yeah, he bullies me into riding sometimes. Yeah. So. so, but yeah, I think that's a, again a benefit of trying new things and, and sort of getting into those uncomfortable where you you know you might feel a little um, beginnerish or you know not as skilled you know not as competent but you know then you also get to, on the flip side to see every week or every time you check in you know that little bit of improvement. But I think for the sake of motivation, you know, the minute you see that you've improved you basically, you know, are addicted to that activity, right? It's true. And the minute I see that I have, like, gotten worse, mm-hmm. it's actually the exact same. Yeah, so a lot of times that checking in, you know, again, it, it relates to that getting feedback on the writing we were talking about, right? Like, if you can get some feedback, then it motivates you one way or the other, and, you, you know, you take more action. So. Yeah. I will also add, though, I am not a metrics person at all so having me actually check in on Strava and stuff like that like we finally found me a Garmin that I can tolerate using where I don't get super annoyed with it all the time but I am not one for you know daily tracking I'm terrible at keeping food journals I'm bad at wearing even like a smartwatch that'll tell me how many steps I went I never charge it so I'm the least tech oriented person which makes the occasional check-in all the more important, I think, because I don't do any daily metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I guess let's move. We talked a bit about your nutrition book, which has just come out, uh, Fuel Your Ride. Um, for you, I mean, people can get that. You know, and there's, It's getting into people's hands now, so it's sort of an exciting time to see what people are thinking. It's so cool. I know a bunch of my clients have got it, and it's you know well-timed for a lot of them as they're you know, still have a little bit of time to work on stuff, but, you know, we're always sort of curious and tinkering with nutrition and, you know, even people who have been doing it for a long time, you know, will make mistakes. So for you, through that whole process of writing that book, what was, you know, maybe something, you know, that was surprising to you, I guess, that came out of the book? Well, I feel like, well, first of all, I guess the thing I'll say is like, you know, there aren't any like revelations in it. It's not like one of the books where it's like, all fat is the way to go or all carbs all the time. It actually really advocates for a really moderate approach. But that actually leads me to, so some of the pros that I interviewed, you know, I interviewed a vegan pro. I interviewed a pro that's actually a trained chef. I interviewed, you know, a couple of gluten-free ones, one that's on an antihistamine diet, one that eats, you know, whatever the heck she wants. And you know, I went into it expecting that I was going to end up with like six super different athlete profiles of just like, oh my God, these people eat in totally different ways. And how am I ever going to boil this down into one takeaway message or like any kind of takeaway message? And I thought it was going to be very combative. Uh, But it turns out that the vegan and the guy that's quoted as saying, everyone needs some red meat sometimes, actually eat almost the exact same diet with the, you know, minor difference being that their protein source is different. But other than that, it's, you know, lots of vegetables, lots of fruit, lots of, you know, healthy grains, whether those grains involve gluten or not, and, you know, a good source of protein and, you know, good healthy fats. So when you broke down all of the diets and you took away the labels, you realized that, hey, all these pro athletes are eating the same way. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And I think the power of the book, I mean, the the whole Whole Foods thing, I don't know if that's, it's one of those things, like, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, that surprising, like, it makes sense, everyone nods their head, but, you know, seeing what that means and how it can mean, you know, if you're going to do a vegetarian that appeals to you, you know, you're going to do paleo, you're going to just eat whatever you want, you know, the way your mom raised you, um, I think it gives you the confidence to do that, but then also, you know, the gut check that, like, are you really, you know, how many, you know, Twinkies or how many soda pops or whatever, you know, are in there, and, you know, just that, that nudge to do it, but then also a little bit of the, the current research along with some of the pros and, again, the sort of rough meal plans that you could do to achieve this common sense not head nodder using vegetarian, using different strategies. Yeah, exactly. Um, did you change anything after writing the book in your approach or our approach since you do a lot of our cooking? Oh, man. Well, our cooking was pretty nailed down as far as our breakfasts and dinners are concerned. Um, however, I admit I did not always practice what I preached, and I maybe went a little bit deep in the baked goods and the chocolate sometimes. Uh, there's a chapter on indulgences and how they're good. I may have taken it a tiny, tiny bit too far sometimes. So, uh, actually, like, in the past month, right before before it came out, really, um, I realized, you know, it's probably time to make sure that my diet is 100% reflective of the stuff that I talk about in the book. So, I've really cut out a lot of the extraneous baked goods and chocolate, and I'm not opposed to having them, and I think there's a time and a place where you you deserve the cupcake, and you can have it, and it's not a problem, Uh but I think every once in a while you need to make sure that uh, you can not have the cupcake and not want to cry. So that's the that's where I am right now is, uh, you know, I'm finally, I think, again at that point where, okay, like a, a cookie every once in a while is cool, but I don't need one every day. Yeah, I think that's a good answer. And I mean, I think coming from, you know, the way you described your childhood and stuff, right? Like definitely that's the way you're going to be wired up. Oh my gosh, so much junk food. Like, I'd come home from school, and we're talking, like, I'm a 16-year-old drinking, you know, a 20-ounce bottle of Mountain Dew and eating a bag of Doritos and a Snickers bar, and it's so embarrassing to say that now as someone that's written books on this, but... Well, I mean, again, I think that, you know, this is no different than starting triathlon at 20. I mean, I think it's inspiring in a lot of ways that, you know, you don't have to be have the perfect upbringing you don't have to no you know have be just trained in the best gym in the world you know your whole childhood exactly you know, or specialize super early even and you can still be you know pretty good at this stuff exactly and I talked to so many women who've gotten into cycling like pretty late in life and they're you know they're nervous or they're embarrassed to get into cycling or to get into sport and I think yeah it's because everyone has this idea that like the really good ones or the people that are competent at it got into it when they were way younger but I mean especially for women like some of the best racers in the country are 50 year old women right now like, so you can get into it much later and be fine and mm-hmm. I mean it's and never certainly <laughs> starting around that 20 year old 22 year old yeah. type thing is common yeah um, but it's absolutely never too late to change your diet and all of that kind of stuff like I mean Peter's seen me giving up Mountain Dew was, I mean, it's embarrassing again to say that, but giving that up was one of the hardest things when it's just such a huge part of like your daily life. So. Right. Um, 
Please don't end on that note. That's embarrassing. <laughs> no, I think for me, you know, I looked at this book and I, I like to think I know what I'm thinking about, but I also like to try and be open to, you know, other people's opinions and, you know, where things might apply, whether it's for me or for clients or whatever. Um, and Nancy was pretty dead set in the book. Um, you can definitely read this in the book. But that, you know, we, with it's not that fat's bad. And I think, we're, we're, you know, we're definitely changing on that. And as Molly says, it's a moderate approach to, you know, your macros. Um, but Nancy made the point that, you know, just throwing coconut oil or throwing, you know, butter or whatever onto your food to try and add fat is maybe shortchanging in terms of a nutrient density standpoint. Not that those foods are bad, but that, you know, if we get our fats from, you know, a good slice of beef or, you know, salmon or olives rather than olive oil. That was actually, I was just going to say my favorite example was eating olives versus olive oil. I also just love olives, but. Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, coming from all admit a, a paleo ancestral type framework that has worked really well for me for the last 10 years. Um, you know, it, it, you know, a gut check where, you know, yeah, probably slathering, you know, a spoonful of coconut oil onto food rather than, you know, eating an actual coconut or something, you know, one makes it way easier, you know, that's just making it harder to consume more calories. So from a body composition standpoint, it makes sense, but also from the nutrient density, like whole foods thing we're talking about, I sort of had the realization that, you know, it, it fits and there's maybe an application for that, but for a lot of people, including myself, it was maybe, you know, shortchanging. It wasn't fitting within that framework I thought I had nailed down. And so I, I definitely, I, the book was really interesting to me. So, um, so to finish off here, what, uh, what do you feel like we're going to do in these next few episodes? What do people have to look forward to? Um, Oh man, we've been super, super excited because we've been talking, I mean, for just, I mean, months, but really in the last like few weeks about, you know, some of the cool people that we want to have on the show and you know some of them are names that you know everyone might know or people that are into sport might know and then some of them are you know people that we're friends with that aren't pro anything they're just doing awesome adventure type stuff um and they you know to us they really epitomize these all-around athletes and you know there's dudes that can go downhilling one day cross-country ski the next um you know, rock climb the day after that and then do a trail run to cap it off, but also be like going out for drinks with their buddies and like, you know, walking around town and hitting up the food trucks and just hanging out. So it's people that really work all of these crazy sports into everyday normal life and don't compromise on having that social life and having a, you know, quote unquote normal life are super cool for for us. Uh, We have, you know, a couple of people we'd love to talk to about you know, how yoga changes you as an athlete. Um, and, you know, we have some stuff that both of us are particularly passionate about. Um, Peter's got some great stuff on heart rate variability that he's been tinkering with and some stuff like that that he's been playing around on. Uh, and then I have some more practical stuff for, you know, more amateur athletes that are sort of thinking about becoming pro and you know, we can talk more about how they can, you know, get this whole body athlete thing without compromising their performance in the one sport, but also, uh, you know, kind of taking it back in a more practical thing. I have talked a bunch about how those athletes can actually, you know, get maintained sponsors and like get their names in the media more and just be better athletes as from like a public standpoint. Uh, so I really want to talk about that at some point. 
but yeah, tons of cool stuff and people and yeah, lots of exciting things. Awesome. So I think we'll wrap it up there. It was great to get to know you, Molly. Well, yeah, I'd hope you do. Um, we'll see you guys again next week. Um, if you have any ideas, feel free to give us a shout. Um, you can reach us on Twitter. Uh, I am at Molly J. Herford. And I am at Peter Glassford. Um, you can also check out our websites. Which are mollyherford.com. It's M-O-L-L-Y-H-U-R-F-O-R-D.com. And you can find me at smartathlete.ca. That's .ca for Canada. Uh, Smart Athlete spelled S-M-A-R-T-A-T-H-L-E-T-E dot C-A. Yay, high five for spelling it right. Later, guys.